I'm your host, Paul Evans. Welcome to the podcast, folks. Got not one, but two brilliant guests coming on the show for you today. Guy Shrubsoul and Nick Hayes going to talk about Right to Rome and your access to the great, great outdoors. A really interesting one. Hope you enjoy it. Don't forget to subscribe to the pod. and hope you enjoy the show. Everyone, welcome to Guy Shrubsoul and Nick Hayes. Guy is an environmental campaigner, works for Friends of the Earth, and has written a brilliant book called Who Owns England? How We Lost Our Green and Pleasant Land, How to Take It Back. Um, and Nick, you're an illustrator, a writer, a land justice campaigner. Um, you've written graphic novels on the likes of Arthur Rimbaud and the likes of Woody Guthrie. And you've recently written a book which is forthcoming in August. It is available for pre-order called The Book of Trespass, Climbing the Fences That Divide England. First of all, guys, very warm welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having us. <laughs> it's nice to be here. How's lockdown treated you? Are you emerging more learned? better at making sourdough have you learned a language or, or written your next book or are you fatter slower slightly more alcohol dependent how's, how's <laughs> uh, well i'm definitely fatter because uh <laughs> swimming is uh is the exercise that uh i do every day uh and i'm still a little too coward like for the uh for the river thames it's just a little too cold for me still so i've just been doing blooming squat jumps in the local park and just a bit, coming home red-faced and bored basically but other than that lockdown is no different to the basic hermit life of an illustrator anyway I've just been finishing work <laughs> like <laughs> I've barely noticed the difference the news seems to be a bit monotone but other than that <laughs> how about you guy uh haven't learned a new language uh haven't been haven't been doing a huge amount of exercise I would say but I have been doing probably more nature study than I'd get to do in London because I've been fortunate to be uh, staying in Cornwall, which is where my folks are. Uh, and so seen, seen more green than I would normally see out my window in a, a London flat where I see possibly a tree and maybe a pigeon every now and again. And now I've seen that swallows, the first swallows of summer I've seen here, which is quite nice, as well as various other lovely bits of nature. And a sort of road to Damascus flash on the A22. Crashed the van into some guy's hedge because I was so fucking wrecked. What's your relationship with surfing, if, if any? Have, have you got one? And, and, and if not, why not? Where do, where do, you, where do you stand on wave riding? <laughs> it's, uh, for me, it's uh, a past relationship. I've got a wetsuit somewhere gathering dust in a, in a cupboard somewhere. Uh, and I have been surfing a number of times when I lived in Mid Wales, uh, lived in Machantleth up in Mid Wales. We went to the coast quite a bit there. Uh, and as I say, my, my folks live in Cornwall, so sometimes visit the south and north coasts and occasionally have tried to get on a bodyboard and possibly a, a, even stand up on a board once or twice, but not very much, I'm afraid, recently. Maybe when lockdown is over, that'll be a sort of resolution to get back on to, into surfing. Surfing blooming ruined my life, practically. Mind your language in front of the boy. Uh, but it wasn't even surfing, it was bodyboarding, which is even more shameful. That includes blasphemy as well. Uh, like, the reason I'm a swimmer is because I can't run because uh, I tore my meniscus in the Cornish waves whilst, uh, I think just whilst trying to get into the ocean, let alone, <laughs> like, bodyboard. Like, I never even caught a wave. Um, and it inflated to the size of a football, pretty much. Uh, <laughs> and luckily, no lifeguards had to sort of mouth-to-mouth -mouth me or anything. I could hobble, hobble back. I think we'd better release you from the legume and transfer your talents to the meat. So 
surfers as a collective, obviously, like anything, it's, it's a bit of a broad group. But I'm always really interested to ask people what their kind of view is on, on surfers, if, if any. And I, I'm thinking that when I kind of got into it in the 80s or whatever, my parents probably think surfers are kind of weed smoking, Santee war, sandal wearing, maybe vegetarian, sort of rebellious type people. And it seems like that's, that's, cha- that's really changed a lot. We've almost, almost gone completely the other way to be super sort of consumer kind of carbon guzzling, flying around the world, chasing swells. We've got to have all the gear, even the places where surfing goes down, you know, quite prime real estate. It's quite a certain amount of privilege involved if you live in Southern California or the East Coast of Australia or even beer it. And I just would, I'd just be quite interested to hear if you guys have a, you know, what you kind of think of surfers as a kind of subculture, if, if anything. And when I lived in New Zealand and, uh, for a while and, and that felt like it was a more kind of, you know, relaxed, casual, hippie kind of surf scene. But maybe, yeah, maybe it's, maybe it's very different now than as you're saying. So, yeah. I'd be disappointed if it's become very consumerist because I always see it as being associated with just getting back to nature, you know, not having a huge amount of need and material needs, but just being kind of like connecting with the, the elements, really. Yeah, I, I was never quite uh, sure why the Red Hot Chili Peppers had to be so mean to Keanu Reeves off point break <laughs> and I think that was always like come on you know give him a break here um I saw a uh, documentary recently about uh um uh war veterans uh, uh a, a surfer was kind of uh uh basically getting funding to just link war veterans to surfing uh for all of the for all of the benefits but you know the sort of psychological just kind of impact of being uh presented with the ocean in its kind of like a infinite way kind of thing you know the, the, the sort of staring at the sublime but also just the activity um and I, I think it's interesting that we're talking to a surfing community about right to roam because one of the things that i think the argument for right to roam that has been going on for hundreds of years in england uh since it was effectively taken away from us um, one of the aspects that we haven't really, none of the arguments have touched upon, they've all touched upon the injustice of having uh, common land removed uh, and privatised, um, uh, the kind of historic injustices of all that. But no one's really hit upon the aspect that I think really resonates with loads of people. And I think the surf community, almost in popular culture, kind of represent this, which is kind of the spiritual aspect of it all. And it might be easy for popular culture to, you know, have a go at surfers for tie-dye and pot smoking and being a bit dim and all that. But that really is just the sort of authoritarian response to um, what has historically been called paganism, but just uh, finding a a, a sort of wider meaning uh, to your existence by... Because the thing about surfing, it's really embedded within the landscape. You're really doing something in the landscape as well. You, you, You really get a sense of... I mean, I, for one, having my knee smashed, got a sense of just the power of uh, the, uh, you know, the, the waves and the undertow. Um, and certainly, I mean, I'm more of a river man anyway, so I like kayaking. Uh, and, and any kind of activity that really gets you uh, basically to parts of the river that you'd never see or experience, you, you can be really submerged in the riverbank uh, by kayaking in a way that, kind of what we're supposed to do in the English landscape, which is just go for a pleasant stroll on a Sunday afternoon. That really is the sort of brand of the English countryside. That's kind of 
what you see people doing, like sort of middle-class people smiling as they go for a quaint stroll. There's just so much more uh, that the human body wants to do with the world outside it. Uh, and, and that has something to do with the link between physicality and spirituality. And I think, and I think surfers are probably, you know, the wise senseis of, uh, of that relationship. Kicking everything from the PCP to the lattes. Going straight edge, doctor's orders. In terms of the status quo at the moment, I mean, everyone knows about the Southwest Coast Path, which is obviously an epic thing to have. I think Wales, my right, it's like the first country to have the sort of a path accessing around its entire border. But the st my understanding was um, the intertidal land was, apart from MOD and stuff, was, was broadly crown land and everyone's got the right to access to it. And is, that, is that about a fair assessment? What, where are we at at the moment with access to the coast in the UK? I was looking into this bit recently which is that yeah the crown estate own most of the foreshore or at least about half of certainly more slightly more than half of it around england and wales and that is as you say the intertidal bit, the bit between the high tide and the low tide um and they also have usually they have uh, ownership over um uh, everything out to 12 nautical miles out from the shore um which is why the crown estate are a lot involved in things like offshore wind turbines and all that sort of stuff um but in terms of actually, there's actually a surprising amount that seems to be owned by other people uh, or other organisations. So a lot of the Seven Estuary, I was surprised to find the other day, is actually owned by, I think it's the Duke of Beaufort's estate, uh, the, Swan, the Swangrave estate. Um, and he is, he's, I think Nick has visited some of his uh, more landward acres. Uh, well, I've jumped over the Obviously walls of his uh, uh, private deer park. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> which is bloody yeah. miles away from where uh, Guy is talking. Like, it's yes. not uncommon uh, for the sort of, especially the historic uh, large landowners or owners of large estates to have, um, uh, to have interests or estates, that, you know, large, massive estates miles away uh, from yeah. where they actually reside, take the profit from them uh, yeah. and ban the public uh, that have grown up there, that, you know, whose grandparents were there. They ban them from uh, setting foot uh, in the woodlands or wildflower meadows or, you know, the lakes and rivers. Um, something, I can't get the figures right, but uh, there was a, a bridge put over a river in Swansea uh, and the Duke of Beaufort happened to own the rights to the river bed which meant that the Council of Swansea to let people go to, uh, you know, better facilitate uh, access to the new stadium. They had to pay him something in the region of £150,000 for what's wow. called an easement, which is a right of way over private property. Uh, just the nature of uh, land law or uh, property law uh, when it comes to rivers is just about the most extreme level of absurdity it is because the Duke of Beaufort owns the mud at the bottom of the river. Uh, the people of the good people of Swansea had to pay him 150,000 pounds or thereabouts. I can't remember the exact figure just to hover over the top of it. Um, what you mean? He didn't, he didn't go guys, guys, you keep that, build a homeless shelter, build a new open space for, for the youth. <laughs> he, oh, wow. What, what, that's really funny <laughs> He probably no, had a rare deer breed he was looking into purchasing. Yeah. <laughs> Some rare <laughs> seeker deer. Because the, I think there, there were a lot of um, there were a lot of objections when the coastal path was being worked out, wasn't there? I think there was uh, 
I saw I, I wasn't really looking into stuff around land and access at the time back in sort of 2010 or so I think but um but I think the, the the country landowners association ended up representing or kind of lobbying on behalf of quite a lot of uh you know celebrities but also kind of land and aristocracy who still own large chunks of foreshore and beach and so on so kind of saying well why do you have a right to come and the, the great unwashed to come and trespass over my beach and it's like sort of seems bizarre now to think that that was even a a dispute I suppose it was the famous one was like was it Madonna and Guy Ritchie there wasn't there a, a, yeah. a path that went close and they kind of they kicked off about that and there was actually yeah. it was in the press there was actually a little bit of a backlash against them in a weird way wasn't it they were kind of yeah, right, the baddies right. because they're I guess because they're new money and they're not the the Judas sure. and the Viscounts sure. well this is it this is it I mean people yeah the, the old money have managed to hide themselves very well and uh, defend themselves against criticism by just looking like uh, you know tea in Downton Abbey and castles and so on and the situation is radically different in Scotland. Tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. And that's pretty, pretty relevant to surfing in particular. Um, probably the, the, the finest wave, certainly one of on the, the, the mainland of Britain is at Thurzo, it's called Thurzo East. It's kind of reef point break up in Caithness there. And to surf there, you, you park on, a, you have to go into a farm and you just park in this kind of muddy farmer's yard you could paddle to it across the river through town but and obviously in scotland there's you can kind of go anywhere as long as you don't do any damage and that's similar to places like norway and a few other countries in europe just listen a little bit about about that and the difference between england and scotland in particular because there's, there's quite a big contrast there well scotland enshrined in law a right to roam uh that right to roam came with a kind of access code because uh, i guess the the mantra of all land rights campaigners is that with rights come uh, responsibilities. Um, but Scotland uh, legislated for open access to all uh, open, open land, open water, um, with uh, very specific exceptions. So not school grounds, not uh, war memorial sites. Uh, um, so... Um. For example. Or not gardens, which is yeah. a very important thing because uh, people like to misconstrue uh, in England the argument against right to roam. People like to pretend that if you had the right to roam to walk across the Duke of Beaufort's however many thousand acres of woodland, uh, they would somehow have the right to come and invade your back garden. But it's a false uh, parallel uh, because everyone has a right to privacy uh, and every single uh, across the globe, every single country that has a right to roam or has uh, um, enshrined public access into either their common law or, uh, you know, the sort of actual uh, state law, um, every single state has made uh, very clear exceptions. And obviously people's back gardens, the notion of human, the, the kind of the human right to privacy uh, that they're all uh, respected and honoured in a right to roam. It's more about uh, the vast amount of not just the land, but the sort of the, the levels of mental health and physical health that uh, opening up these places could offer the general public. One of the primary uh, sort of pillars of the English definition of property is the right to exclude. And up in Scotland, they simply removed the landowner's right to exclude everybody else. Um, the argument is in England that uh, landowners should have the right to exclude, basically because the public can't be trusted, 
they're vandals uh they'll run a mock in the countryside um scotland disproves that uh norway disproves that estonia disproves that finland disproves that and scotland's a very tricky uh or, or everyone likes to ignore scotland uh you know from the landowner's point of view because it has worked so well and because it's just over the border um there's no reason for england not to follow the same course but the politicians or the landowners will say one that england is full uh that there's no space the truth is of course that all the space of England is hidden behind the brick walls, either of the aristocracy or new money or corporate offshore corporations that own it. Um, so it seems like England has no space because we're constricted to these uh, rights of access or, or public paths that come a sunny day like this or on, on a weekend or a bank holiday kind of thing are just crowded with people because there's simply no other space for them to be. I don't know if you came up with this, Nick, but I heard about the Natural Health Service in, a, in another podcast I listened to. And that, to me, is really sort of sums up one of the benefits of surfing in particular. And particularly in the UK, and I'm thinking about the Southwest, where the ways aren't necessarily like kind of world-class ways every day, but just going there, the aspect of going there is really beautiful. And people always kind of ask me about what I sort of miss about back home. And I can't actually remember many waves I actually rode. But I really remember, you know, walking under waterfalls or down these beautiful cliffs and this dramatic coastline with ruined castles. And that whole thing is, is really is the kind of hook. And that is the kind of benefit of, of surfing, being out in nature or whatever it is you're doing, R rambling, free swimming. Um, yeah, just the natural health service. I'm just really interested in that and some of the benefits and why this is so important. It's not just because, you know, we want to get these rich land off them it's actually a real benefit for everyone to be able to access the land we should probably plug uh, i think the person who originated the phrase the natural health service has also got a book out and that's isabel hardman whose book is called the natural health service right um, yeah i think she's she's been coming up with that phrase recently that phrase has been going around since at least the 1950s uh and th the reason it works so well is obviously uh the acronym is nhs and uh when the nhs was originally formed uh it was formed in uh the mindset was formed in corollary with uh this idea that uh to to celebrate the end of the war to give uh you know the returning soldiers or the population of britain that had you know knuckled down and got the job done some kind of uh reward to give the soldiers a sense of what they'd fought for um there was going to be the welfare state there were going to be pensions there was going to be a health service so that people you know could be free at the point of care but also um there was uh certainly uh you know in sort of 46 and 47 and 48 uh this concept that more of the natural uh health benefits of nature should be opened to the public in order to alleviate the pressure from it, it's it's to give the prevention before the need for the cure so actually right to rome was kind of presented uh um in various bills um as a uh as a sort of partnership with the nhs so isabella hardman i haven't read her book yet but definitely will uh just uh, alongside lucy jones who wrote losing eden which is about the mental health benefits of being around nature and sciences catching up with essentially you know thousands of year old paganism uh, by proving uh, 
bizarre things such as the link of kindness to um, the sublime uh, or from, you know, the benefits of microbes in the soil uh, that are released by actually working the soil, not just the toil and the exercise and the being out amongst the bees and the sunshine. Stuff like the phytonicides that, uh, that trees release in their essential oils that for just a two hour walk in woodland, you can boost your immune system for up to a month afterwards. There, there has always been this kind of sense that nature is, a, is, 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 is something that resets uh, your perspective or your mental health, but also benefits you on a physical level. And certainly in the late 40s, that was something that was seen as part of the package uh, to offer England. Um, but it was uh, resolutely quashed by the landowners. That uh, was a step too far. In America and Australia, uh, their, their common law is based on English common law for obvious reasons. And uh, you have right to access in Australia and America, uh, the rivers, uh, based on the same common law that in England says you have absolutely no right to access rivers unless there's a specific act that says so. So it's interesting because these things were founded, you know, from, I guess, as early as the 1500s on the same rules. But recently, England has become a world leader of exclusion <laughs> and uh, other countries. Yeah, bizarre as it may seem, even America has a more... Uh, liberal or libertarian attitude to uh, people's rights, especially on the waterways. But I guess the point we're saying is that uh, the original privatisation of the NHS came when the Natural Health Service of England was enclosed and privatised and fenced off from all the people that lived around the areas of the land that were enclosed who no longer have the right to the peace of mind uh, and the health-giving properties of nature, basically. Flowers are essentially tarts, prostitutes for the bees. All right, well, that's it for part one of the show. Got loads more coming up with Guy and Nick. We're going to talk about the MOD, Ministry of Defence Land. We're going to talk about crusties, free campers, and we're going to finish up finding out about the campaign and some trespasses that are being organised so stay tuned for part two. Don't forget, as ever, you can get in touch with us. Send us a tweet at Wavelength Mag. Drop us a DM on Insta, Wavelength Surf Mag on Instagram. Or you can send us a mail, editor at wavelengthmag.com. Hope you enjoy the rest of the show. Just thinking of trespassing um, and with the, in reference to the MOD and the Ministry of Defence comes up quite a lot in, in your book, Guy. Um, I'm assuming that the kind of default advice is don't trespass an MOD land. Um, there's, in particular, there's one of the, sort of probably like the best wave in Wales, which is a little bit of a secret spot. To get to it, you can either, it's a really nasty paddle across some quite tidal waters, or at low tide, you can kind of skirt along between these little coves. And, but it's MOD land, and a few Welsh surfers down the years have actually been arrested, and you get put in this little room with some squaddies for a bit, and not roughed up, <laughs> but just kind of bullied orally. Don't touch him up, knock him out. Um, for a while, but anyway, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just sort of kind of assuming when it comes to trespassing in general, what we're saying is it's probably not a great idea to, to mess with the 
with a squad ease and the MOD. Well, I mean, um, I wrote a bit about in the book about a visit that actually Nick and I both went on to um, the military island of Foulness, which is off the Essex coast. I'm not sure the surf there is anything to, to write home about. It's probably fairly fairly flat and without many waves most of the time because of all the big mudflats out on the Maplin Sounds, which incidentally is one of the most dangerous paths to go across in Britain. Uh, we didn't go. We didn't go that way. We didn't walk across the sands because I think uh, it would have. We would have got swept away by the incoming tide if we weren't careful. But um, we decided to go the route of um, uh, the, the authoritative route by going on the. I think it was the last Sunday of the month between one p.m. and four p.m., which is the only time you're allowed to access this island, which is bizarre because it is actually inhabited by civilians as well. It's it's you know. Um, you know, non non military farmers and people living there who are just farming the land still, and it is like a bit like going back to the 1950s. You sort of go through this checkpoint where you're, you know, you are kind of uh, subjected to the power trips of the um, the, the squaddies on 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 patrol, told not to take any photographs. So obviously, we enjoyed taking si photographs of the signs that said no photography, um, and you know, cycled across into this into this kind of land that seemed to have been forgotten in some ways apart from the fact that um they still you know blow up things there and set fire to uh, old munitions and you can see the kind of smoke plumes off into the horizon but yes probably generally speaking if you're going to trespass somewhere you probably don't want to trespass on MOD land quite too much because uh, obviously the people there do have guns but then so that they do so on the grouse moors as well so you know you're up against the grouse shooting lobby and the hunting lobby or, or, uh, or, the, or the military as well. It occurred to me when I was writing this book that not all trespass signs are uh, um, against the public's interest. Like uh, uh, trespassing on railway lines is a pretty uh, sensible uh, thing to ban people from doing because in no matter how much you might want to get back your football or something, uh, it, it's better for society to be uh, banned from something that might cause not just damage to you by being hit by a train, but you know, damage to the train driver and the like. I think those kind of things are legitimate, and actually, to have areas of land that are used <coughs> for, um, I don't know, soldiers so that they can practice with their toys, kind of thing. That's kind of, I mean, you could make an argument for any number of things that uh, have a legitimate uh, um, reason for the general public to be excluded. Uh, but only in the context of us being allowed the rest of it. Um, like a sign that says no trespassing over uh, the third Baron Margdale's property in Gloucestershire that is uh, that I went uh, on the chapter that I was that I wrote about slavery and how slavery financed uh, especially the compensation that was negotiated for slaves, how that um, financed just a, a a shed load more walls uh, to enclose a shed load more land in England. So the working class of England were um, uh, were also hemmed in uh, and kind of uh, hemmed out rather of the land by an injustice or, or, or um, a violence enacted upon another group of people, say from Angola or Sierra Leone. Um, so the injustice of the working class in England is kind of married to the injustice of the you know people that were kidnapped uh, from Africa. But the point is, uh, the signs that tell me no, I can't go and trespass on this land owned by the third Baron Margdale, uh, who enclosed the land, 
simply because he owned about 1,500 slaves. And when manumission came, he was paid a lot of money by the British public uh, to, um, uh, to free those slaves, which incidentally he didn't do like everyone else for another six years after the act. They were still kept as apprentices uh, unpaid. Um, that kind of sign is against the public interest. That kind of sign uh, is uh, the result, I would say, largely uh, solidified in the kind of unreformed parliament. So up until uh, the early 1800s, uh, where to be an MP, you could only be an MP by virtue of the amount of land you own. So politicians were first landowners, first and foremost. And this, I think, is one of the reasons why uh, so much of the uh, orthodoxy against uh, a right of access to the you know, natural health benefits of uh, English land uh, is, is so ingrained in, in the law and the mindset of England is simply because the people that wrote the laws wrote them for themselves. And they get very shirty about that, but it's it's there in the history books. It's just you you could only vote as well if you possessed land and property up to a you know the property qualification for voting as well up until eighteen. Well, I guess ultimately nineteen eighteen and nineteen nineteen. I think for women as well, like nineteen twenty eight, even yeah, nineteen twenty eight. Yeah. We haven't even come to the centenary of where women without property. Were well, you know, for ten vote. years, women with property were allowed to vote. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, you know, you were still an underdog or uh, a pariah if you didn't own a certain amount of money in the nineteen yeah. twenties. I wanted to talk about free camping, um, so I guess it's a little bit different from wild camping, but I guess it's sort of the same in Britain, but particularly in Europe. I think of free camping in relation to surfing. There are places in the south of Spain and on the Algarve, Portugal, where. <laughs> You get these kind of big vans, not necessarily like a VW camper, but a little bit more like a lorry kind of van, if you know the thing I mean, with big wheels and these guys that might have like one, one dread that goes down to their waist, but like quite shaved, sort of quite confrontational hair on the sides. And they've got those big yeah. clumpy boots that are always undone. You know what I mean? When they I mean, walk like the boots. Extras from Waterworld. <laughs> yeah, the boots kind of, <laughs> yeah, they sort of scuff. Waterworld. They scuff the floor. If they've got a dog, it's not, it's not a poodle. It might be a kind of aggressive looking dog. And, and they kind of inhabit these car parks, in, particularly in the Algarve and the south of Spain, particularly in winter. And the local residents are quite against that for a number of reasons. And, and in those areas, there are all these kind of surf camps that have popped up and they're quite a little bit very much more middle class. And it's yoga retreats and wellness and acai bowls and all this kind of stuff. And I'm just wondering a little bit your thoughts just on the the right to be able to kind of go where you want in your van and do what you want. And also is, is a lot of that maybe that sort of animosity to do with appearance. And I'm also kind of thinking that maybe at Glastonbury, there's that one year where the kind of crusty movement was sort of usurped by a much more sort of sinister element. And just a few thoughts on kind of free camping, essentially, and our right to be able to go anywhere and kind of sleep anywhere in our vehicles. Why, why, it's, why, why shouldn't we, everyone be allowed to have a night under the stars? I mean, uh, often it will be safer potentially uh, to, to camp out if, if you're attempting an ascent down a mountain and the weather comes in. You know, you may well be safer off camping out and waiting for the bad weather to go and then to be able to move on down. But, you know, I can understand that people, you know, wouldn't want, you know, someone rocking up in their backyard. Again, it comes back to this sort of sense of property and, back gardens and you know my privacy and so on but actually what we're talking about here mostly in the most part is going to be about people just 
just wanting to live a different sort of outdoor life right and you know but, but yet here in the uk currently we're having a debate about criminalizing trespass and criminalizing traveler camps and so on and you know it's getting to such an extreme level of well prejudice and persecution against particular minorities here but also against uh, others who you know choose to take on either that lifestyle or to uh, protest protester camps which we've had a lot of in the last 10 years trying to you know get rid of stop fracking all of that would be instantly criminalized if the government got their way on this manifesto commitment they've made to criminalize trespass It'd be you know incredibly draconian so we're going completely in the opposite direction here at the moment well i, I think they're two different things i think the right of uh people to be able to camp uh is just a um associated with uh the historic enclosure of land in that um, uh, some of the benefits of having access to land, uh, once I've fenced it, I can now sell them back to you. So that's what a campsite is. It's just a patch of land that I've told you first, you can't camp on. And then I've said, well, you can camp here if you pay me some money for it. So that's just, that's just like hunting or fishing or all of those kind of things, except for setting limits on Fishing is, for example, is understandable. I think you should have a license for fishing simply because there's a depletion of fish stocks and someone needs to manage it. Uh, and and it, it sort of provides a structure that benefits the, the natural health of the river, for example. But when it comes to land, the idea of someone, uh, when I've gone wild camping or just sleeping rough, basically, just without the tent, uh, you wake up at dawn and the birds are crazy loud. Uh, you fall back to sleep again, then the sun wakes you up. You feel more embedded in nature and more calm than this kind of, like I was saying earlier, this kind of middle-class brand of the countryside where you put Hugo and Jacobite into the uh, the boot of the car and you shunt them up to the peak districts. You race around for the top. You go and stay in an Airbnb or a da-da-da-da-da-da. For working-class people... Uh, not only is that too expensive, but it just doesn't sort of necessarily register as something that you would do. The idea of just going for a walk with your tent, finding a beautiful spot and sleeping there the night is, is such a good example of how trespass is not a crime. Uh, you've caused no damage. If anything, you've caused a net uh, positive, uh, you know, you, you've done a net positive for the world because you come back remembering that humans are you know are are, are are not the half of the world kind of thing there, there's so much more to the world but whenever i go wild camping um i feel i feel all those wonderful things that you, you you're talking about i see nature i get close to nature i see it in all its glory and i think this is amazing why can't we do this all the time but the back of my mind there's always this fear as well it's not fear i don't think of of you know somebody coming in you know beating me up or nicking stuff from my tent in the night it's the fear of the landowner it's the fear of the landowner finding me and because mm. of trespass because of that in deeply ingrained sense that i shouldn't be there that i feel dissuaded from doing it so and i just i just wanted to say that because i just felt like that's that must be in many people's heads when they think about oh well shall i go out for a you know walk and take my tent with me i'm not going to book a site a campsite because i can't be bothered and then they just don't they just don't end up they don't end up doing it they don't end up experiencing that because because of that fear well i guess this is one of the reasons i wrote the book because i've done it so many times in other people's property uh, and i've never seen anyone because their property happens to be you know however many square miles of uh land and the gamekeepers 
just are already in bed and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but you're right, it's the psychological barrier. Um, I talk about this in chapter four of the book, like walls don't just provide a physical barrier, they provide a sort of uh, faceless uh, statement of authority uh, that you feel like if you're breaching a wall or climbing a wall that you're committing some kind of moral crime. The idea that the wall itself was a moral uh, kind of, um, essentially it dismembered the community from the land uh, and the, uh, the sort of impoverishment of people's psyches and, uh, uh, and their wealth, their sort of ability to provide for themselves is, such, is a crime of such disproportionate uh, scale to actually just climbing the wall and taking your uh, stroll. Um, but the wall possesses an authority. But just, can I just say something about, I mean, essentially the people that you're, you were describing, Paul, uh, were, um, you know, roundly classed or, or sort of defined uh, in law as sort of travellers or, or gypsies. Yeah. Um, and the fear or the impossibility to comprehend a life that is about motion rather than fixity has been... Uh, you know, since uh, the vagrancy acts of, you know, sort of Edward II, but Henry, the, the word gypsy comes from Henry VIII, misdefining uh, or wrongly defining uh, the, these people from Rajasthan, um, uh, the, the Roma gypsy, uh, misdefining them as Egyptians. Yeah. So there was the Egyptians Act in the 15, uh, in, in sometime 1530 or something like that. Uh, that called these people, it even said, these people calling themselves Egyptians, they didn't call themselves Egyptians, uh, and they've subsequently been sort of shortened to being called gypsies. It's just even that label is an example of state, the operation of state power. Uh, you get a group of people that uh, um, threaten an order, and in this case, the order is property and fixity, and this place is mine because I fenced it versus a completely different mindset, which is uh, I travel, which incidentally is historically been with humans for far longer than a settled agricultural existence. Um, yet property and the sort of men of power that, uh, whose interest it is to defend property uh, have turned people that like to travel, travelers, gypsies, people who it's part of their culture to travel uh, they've turned them into the pariahs of England. So the number one argument that people will say who disagree with me listening to that will be like, but they leave so much litter, they've got no respect. They were pariahs before, uh, uh, you know, before sort of various incidents uh, that might occur that, you know, the, the, the travellers might turn up and then leave the place a tip. If the travellers were welcome, no one's even considered what that might look like. And again, there's, there's just wankers in every community. You know, like some people are going to take a shit and chuck it in the hawthorn bush. Uh, like that doesn't make travellers uh, as, as a group a problem, except for the fact that the newspapers, it's such a deep orthodoxy that travellers are a problem, that if a group of travellers do do that, uh, then, then the whole damn lot has to be tarred with that brush. And even people that don't identify as racist or classist or sexist or anything like that still have an unconscious bigotry against people that, whose homes are their bands. Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, yeah another... maybe they've got a dreadlock. <laughs> like, get over it, you know. There was yet another Channel 4 programme about, you know, the, the, the supposed truth about traveller crime the other day, and I think uh, I think there were about 7,000 complaints because, you know, just yet again kind of playing to that stereotype and, you know, mm -hmm. demonising a community, basically. You should just get a van. With a van, it's like you've got an MBA, but you've also got a fucking van. You're not just a man anymore. You are a man with a van. I, I suppose everything in Britain always inevitably sort of gets looked at the framework of class and just going back to visit on who goes to the countryside and how, and it's quite a middle class thing. I guess the only people from council estates that ever you ever really sort of associate being anywhere in a sort of natural environment is like carp fishing, I suppose. There was a little bit of a movement with the sort of working class and they, they were always quite into carp fishing and going to lakes and things like that. And I guess I'd... I'd like to think surfing, you know, as people would maybe from maybe that sort of background as well, would be another thing. I mean, it's quite an unusual juxtaposition, someone that listens to death metal, but walking through this kind of beautiful cliff park because he's, he's got a board and he you know, wants to go and shred. But um, <laughs> you guys are running a campaign at, um, at the moment. I just want to ask a little bit about that, particularly to do with these, these kind of laws that might be coming down. I just want to know like what, what the threat is essentially and how can people get involved um, and just, Guy, your, your book asked the question who, question who owns England. The answer was a few Aristos, the Queen, the church, who sort of is the Queen in a way, and some sort of big farming interests harvesting sort of subsidies. And fewer and fewer people with bigger and bigger bits of land. Um, they want to keep the sort of scum out. Anyone that speaks up, you guys in particular, are always accused of being from the suburbs. I guess it's something Chris Packham gets quite a lot from the kind of countryside people. Doesn't, you don't understand our way of life because you're from mm. the suburbs but mm -hmm. i guess my, my question is essentially what what is the campaign and 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 yeah how can people get involved my book it's called who owns england is obviously a question and a, an attempt a, a kind of who done it kind of detective story about who, trying to find out who owns england and, and, and the elite who do but it is obviously also a challenge because it's a bit like saying well whose streets and the reply should be our streets because it is actually saying we all should own england no, no individual should it's it should be you know all of us who are uh, have access to and, and ownership of the land and so that's why i think yeah you know nick and i've been campaigning recently um as you say on particularly this particular threat that the government is threatening to criminalize trespass because uh it so fundamentally affects everyone uh it affects very much specifically and most disproportionately traveler communities uh and uh protest groups and people who want to camp out and people who want to uh you know live a, as, as nick's been talking about life that is is more nomadic but it would affect everyone now it would even affect the creation of new public rights of way because for hundreds if not thousands of years footpaths and rights of way have been created essentially through the through trespass so we obviously all have this deeply ingrained sense that trespass is wrong and bad um, it is already uh, against the law but it's against the common law which means that the landowner can pursue you through the courts if they really want to um, if they can, if they think they can prove that you somehow damaged or done something to, the, to their land as a result of the trespass. But what the government is saying, this current government is saying, is that they want to make it a crime against the state. A crime against the state to step off a footpath, to camp out for the night, to take part even in a protest camp, which by which point you'll probably be already knowing you're going to break the law, but not just simply for the act of going and camping. You know, this is, this is crazy stuff. This is like level of draconian you know illiberalism that you know we'd sort of have nightmares about but this is actually what they're proposing and 
we started this petition on the Parliament website. Um, it's got, I think, at the last count, about 18,000 signatures. So it's already had a, a response from the government, which was absolutely not reassuring in any way. Um, but if we press on, we try and get it higher, try and get MPs uh, to sort of take notice and debate it potentially. Uh, and, you know, please, if everyone listening to this um, wants to sign it, um, just go to the Parliamentary Petition website and search for Don't Criminalise Trespass. You should be able to find it and uh, please add your name. And on a wider scale as well, I think what we're, I've, I mean, what we were planning before COVID came and dropped was um, uh, that the next two years would be uh, a um, sustained campaign to uh, to, to lobby for greater access to uh, England's either either the land in England or the rivers. There's 97% of rivers in England you're banned from public access. Um, so essentially what we'd like to do, and, and, and when COVID has come along all of a sudden, all of a sudden the kind of the, uh, the link between access to space and social justice is more evident than ever. People in lockdown who have had gardens or people in lockdown who've had access to uh, the countryside have managed to deal with it, uh, well, I assume, but ha have a lot greater means to dealing with that kind of uh, isolation simply by not being as isolated. Um, and so my book, the, the Book of Trespass, deals with kind of the philosophy of space in uh, chapter eight and how uh, the National Trust was set up uh, because uh, Octavia Hill, amongst other people, John Ruskin, William Morris, wanted uh, working class people who were cooped up in uh, cities and towns and a very, you know, increasingly industrialised uh, atmosphere. Uh, they realised that the, the access to space was something uh, that was vital for... Um, for their mental health to stop people resorting to alcoholism and uh, aggression so much uh, and hence Epping Forest was opened up uh, as as an official common ground Hampstead Heath uh, you know the National Trust uh, was born of that but now as Guy says if anything the progression of rights to land in England has just been tightening and tightening against the uh, interests of the public uh, this year is 20 year um, anniversary of the Countryside Rights of Way Act, which effectively opened up 8%. It opened up the coastal path, so you now have a right to walk on the coastal path, and it opened up the moors, so you have a right to walk. But still this idea of swimming or kayaking or camping um, over some of the land, just as you surfers know, like it's even more... It, exhilarating to uh, to interact with the landscape rather than just observe it like it's something that is owned by someone else behind a red rope in a museum um, so I, I guess effectively I'd be very interested if surfers that already have the right to um, not to sound too hippie about it but to commune with what they consider to be a far greater power of spirituality than anything that man has construed. Um, if you guys and girls would want to help us out, like we need boots on the ground, we're going to do some trespasses, we're going to target the particular areas that we're going to do for the best kind of media story. We want to tell a story that completely upends the orthodoxy of England, which is civil 
ordered society rests on the ability to exclude the riffraff from my 8,000 acre estate. Um, we want to make it urgent to people that their health, their mental health, their physical health, but also their spiritual health uh, has, been, has been jeopardized by the removal of our rights to access. And to be honest, if surfers, like Guy says, if you uh, add to the, uh, your, your name to the um, petition, but also if you go to landjustice.uk and sign up to us there, because if we're honest, mine and Guy's website isn't ready yet. That's righttoroam.org. But it will be, or if you follow Guy on Twitter, um, the next two years is when we're going to try and do some, uh, just basically, if we're honest, just go for nice walks, play some music, have some picnics on gorgeous you know gorgeous woodland that some old dude has decided that belongs to him um i don't see it as a crime so i don't see i i don't feel particularly aggressive about it i just like to invite people along for a picnic and then get that in the papers and make the point there well what a wicked interview uh, really really pleased to have guy and nick on talking with such sort of passion and knowledge that's really interesting issues and I um, hope you've been inspired to get out amongst nature, get up early or go out and sleep under the stars, go and sit under an old oak tree and get your full lotus position on and just commune with nature. Speaking of a higher state of consciousness, um, we will be dropping the next episode of It's Not The Length, that's episode 17, myself and man like Ben Mundy, that's coming first Friday of the month typically, so coming up in about two weeks time, episode 17 of It's Not The Length, in the meantime drop us a line, send us a tweet at Wavelength Mag, send us a mail editor at wavelengthmag.com, take care of each other, we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>